In this episode of 92i Talks, Christina Ricci and author Therese Fowler sit down with film and TV critic Karen James to discuss Amazon's new series, Z, The Beginning of Everything, a fictionalized bio-series of the life of Zelda Fitzgerald. It was recorded on January 24th, 2017, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Here we are again with Christina Ricci and Therese Ann Fowler, and I want to say hello and welcome everyone who's watching on the live stream. So let's start with you, Christina. You apparently set all this in motion. You read the novel and wanted to play Zelda. Tell me how that all played out after that. Um, Well, I read the novel and I loved it. I was sort of so uh, enamored with the voice that Therese gave gave Zelda. uh, so I inquired after who had the option because I was uh, interested in auditioning to play her and it turned out it was available. So I uh, brought it to Pam Koffler at Killer Films and then we took it to Amazon. So did you always think of it as a series or was it ever going to be a movie? How did it all We develop? pitched it as a limited series and then it was actually Amazon that decided they wanted it to be a bio series. Mm-hmm. And how did you get interested in Zelda in the first place? You know, I'd like to say that, that I was, you know, an aficionado of, of Zelda, as so many people are, like, for my whole life, or that somehow I knew everything about her because she was, you know, this iconic woman that was married to F. Scott Fitzgerald. But the fact was, I didn't know very much about her when the idea occurred to me to write about her. It was a very strange experience for me. I had just started contemplating writing historical fiction, and I had these other ideas about stories that I might want to take on. And I was literally making notes in a journal one, one day when, like, just in my head came this idea, what about Zelda Fitzgerald? And, you know, I'd never been struck by an idea that way before. And so I thought, I will follow up on this and see where it takes me. And I, I think Christina has said this in some interviews she's done, that, that our perception of who this woman was is that she was just this, this sort of alcoholic, crazy woman who derailed um, Scott Fitzgerald's career and, and sort of kept him from achieving the potential that he should have achieved. But as soon as I started reading some of the biographies about her, I realized how wrong that was. And, and it was surprising to me that that misperception persisted despite there having been some excellent biographies written about her. And so it, it just became like this, this cause I needed to champion. Um, and I just sort of went down the rabbit hole from there. Christina, was that your perception of her? Did you have a perception of her when you read the novel? I was very much the same uh, boat. I, I had my perception was the common misperception that she was a, um, just this crazy alcoholic woman who ruined F. Scott Fitzgerald's life. That was it. And I read the book thinking, oh, I like crazy ladies, um, <laughs> and then found out that it was just complete myth. Um, and that, and it really kind of poked my sense of injustice that. And then when I found out there was all this, this was not new information. Right. It's out there. And that the, the myth and the lie kept, was being perpetuated just really made me mad. So why do you think that happened? Why has that been so persistent? Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> well, that's what I keep saying. I was saying. And it's so weird that we know there are two people. They were super famous. We know all, we knew everything about this one person. And the other person, all we know is what Hemingway said about her. And it's just like... Yeah, A Movable Feast, you know, is one of those perpetually popular books. And so everybody who comes to that book anew gets that version of Zelda from Hemingway, you know, 30 years after their relationship had ended. Mm -hmm. And this is not in season one of the series, but Hemingway's a pretty big villain in your novel, isn't he? Well, you know, I call it the way I see it. (laughs) (laughs) How many seasons of this series do you plan? I know you have one series now, and it ends before he's written The Great Gatsby. How far do you think you can go? Um, hopefully, the plan is that it's it's uh, that it, that it would cover the span of their relationship together. Because really, the idea for the the TV series is that it is the telling of their love affair, their marriage, but through Zelda's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so hopefully, it would cover that whole her, their whole romance, wild romance. <laughs> And, and that's the span of your novel as well. It's right. their relationship. Why did you decide to do it that way rather than her whole life? Well, you know, one of the things that, that I think fiction obliges us to do is sort of to give a story um, 
manageable arc. So the biographers have the luxury of telling us everything about the, the people who they're, they're writing about. You know, everything from what they like to eat to which position they slept in to, you know, every place they lived and, and their first words. That's all interesting, and it's all absolutely necessary to me as the novelist. But containing the story in a, in a kind of dramatic manner um, just brings power, I think, to the drama. Mm -hmm. So how historically accurate did you think you needed to be when you're dramatizing all of this? The Fitzgeralds' lives are so well documented by other people and also by, by themselves that I, I felt not just obliged but personally compelled to stick as close to that record as I could. Now, obviously, there, you know, for every fact that we know about them, there's a lot of space in between that, that allows us to invent. And so I, I did take advantage of that space. But as far as what occurred and when it occurred and why, as much as I could determine it occurred, I, I stuck to the facts. Okay. And what kind of research did you do besides reading the novel to get into Zelda's life and her experience? Um, I read uh, her biography. I think I read about three or four biographies. Um, I read bi his biographies. And I read all of his writing and as much of her writing as I could mm -hmm. get my hands on. How good a writer do you think she was? Zelda? Yeah, Zelda. Her short stories are, are very accomplished and completely charming. And in fact, I encourage anyone who only knows Zelda's writing from her novel, Save Me the Waltz, to go back and, and read her short fiction and her essays, because that's where you really feel Zelda you know, most genuinely. You know, she wrote Save Me the Waltz after she had had her breakdown and she was hospitalized. So that's not really the, the truest um, example of her of talent, I think. Mm -hmm. But the short fiction that she was publishing, both under her own name and um, sometimes under Scott's name, um, really shows us the talent that she had. And I think that talent could have been further developed if she'd been able to take herself seriously and had been taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me there probably were two kinds of readers for your novel and audience for this series, people who are curious about Zelda Fitzgerald and people who are already obsessed and who cannot get enough of that period. What do you, is that, does that seem like an accurate assessment of the possible audience? That, that sounds right to me. You know, there, in the afterword uh, in the novel, I talk about how I became aware very quickly while doing the research that there were these sort of two teams, um, Team Scott. Team Zelda, those are the vociferous champions on, on both sides of, of the debate, let's call it. Um, but yeah, there are lots of people who are just simply fascinated with the era or who have encountered Zelda as a, what they think of as a feminist icon who are coming you know, to the show, to the book both, um, and people who just really love great like, historical costume drama. Right? I mean, that's what I'm getting from, from watching the show right now. So what do you think accounts for that fascination with that period, with those characters in particular and with the whole Jazz Age period? You don't know. I'll weigh in after you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so after, after the Great War, we have this period of time where we're coming out of the Edwardian era where, you know, everybody is, is very, you know, laced up, right? Victorian era precedes the Edwardian era. People are so used to following the rules right up until the US gets involved in World War I. And then suddenly it's sort of like anything goes. And I think we are sort of as a, as a, a population fascinated with, with people who break the rules, um, people who go farther than everyone else around them is going. The Fitzgeralds um, became what I think of as sort of the first celebrity it couple. They were, they became famous sort of for being famous. We are all still fascinated, I think, with, with celebrity. And you know, Christina has been dealing with that most of her life. And what do you think accounts for it in terms of movies? And is it the costumes? Is it the, you know? I think the there's glamour? also a, a real excitement and uh, a palpable kind of enthusiasm at that time for what was new, what was next. Mm -hmm. um, people clamoring for, for the for new technology and new art and um, a really forward thinking and an excitement that I think is um, contagious. And people like to revisit this period because you can kind of, 
kind of get it's that like a vicarious thrill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I also think that it's, it's an interesting time because it is post-World One and sort of the class system changed so much and we can finally, because they're not royalty, they're not first families, we can actually see ourselves as potentially being these people. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it as well. Right, and, and Zelda was one of those people who, who everyone wanted to be with her, you know. There are, I think there are certain people who are kind of iconic who are off-putting, you know, and they just want the spotlight alone. But she was the kind of person who was like, well, you know, come on, you know, let's all go. We'll, we'll, we'll go drinking, we'll go dancing, we'll have a good time. And, and that's attractive, too. Mm -hmm. Is there something about her that resonates with people, especially with women today? Is she relevant in some way to us, do you think? I think so. I think it's taken a very long time for us to sort of almost for us to catch up to her mindset. And I think until we were able to kind of get there as well, her behavior was mysterious and somewhat off-putting. Um, and so I think that now that we, we understand so much more about human nature, just in general, we're so therapized and all this stuff, that um, I think now she's someone very relatable in a way that before she, she was not. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I could be wrong. I mean, we certainly see more people like that now because women have given themselves permission to be the people that, that they were. Zelda, of course, was, was sort of way out there, but one of the reasons that she, you know, fails in some ways to achieve her own potential is because she's sort of pushing against this sort of patriarchal conservative standard that I hate to think is coming back right now, but um, that we have made, you know, so many gains in, and women especially have made these gains, that we can be more those people um, without fear of recrimination. I think it's interesting, too, to note that, well, at least from, from everything I read and from, from uh, the attitude I adopted to play her, she had a very much this assumption that she would get all of these things that I think is really out of place for the time and for her upbringing. But she just kind of assumed that she'd be able to stand on her own right, that she would be valid and appreciated. And it's interesting because it seems much more like a modern woman's. Mm -hmm. And we were talking backstage about how, you know, she, she made all of these choices, I think, assuming that things were going to work yeah. out for her and assuming that Scott, who positioned himself as this very modern forward-thinking, you know, go-getter kind of guy was going to be right there with her. And so I think some of her biggest disappointments um, arrived because suddenly he became this, this paternalistic husband, where before he was her partner in crime. Mm -hmm. Well, in this episode, we see that. And for anyone on the live stream, we've just seen an episode in which um, Zelda has gone for a screen test, and Scott says, no, you can't in the movies, it's not good for my reputation. What do you, is that the moment when she begins to see he's kind of thwarting her in a way? Is that the, the beginning of the turn in that marriage, do you think? I think so. I think for, for me, the beginning of the turn is when she arrives in New York and she sees that he has absolutely no interest in waiting for her family. Oh. It doesn't matter how she wants to be married. She has to make a choice to be on board and be excited about it or to be unhappy. And I think it's very Zelda, she decides to be happy about it. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I, I love and stories about, one of the things in particular I love about stories about women who, women in history who've sort of suffered or struggled is this ability to sort of make lemonade out of lemons mm -hmm. in a way. And I think that Zelda, according certainly to her daughter, um, was very much that person, that she made the best of the situation. Mm -hmm. So. I think that actually that was the moment where she started to realize. Um, and then from then on, I think she's kind of testing a little bit to see, will this work? Well, oh, what is the extent of this? What, mm -hmm. how far is this gonna go? And I think very much by the end of this season, she sort of realizes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a different saying. paradigm, right? Because when they're, they're in the earlier stages of their romance, he's sort of directing things up to a point and she's flattered, I think, by all the attention. And you know, this this Yankee, you know, who wants to be this famous writer, is going to show her the big life. But he he's a person who has to direct everything. And she discovers this right when they get yeah. to New York, and suddenly it's his way or no way. And he's out of his element down south. So the the 
you know, she she has a little bit. I think that, a that more power for a little bit. Yeah, she had more mm -hmm. power, and I don't think she realized that was going to change at all. Right. So why do you think he did thwart her? Was it jealousy? Was it insecurity? What was that about? Both, I think. And competitive. They, they yeah. both seem to be very competitive with each other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there, there's a, a scene early in the book before their marriage where um, Zelda's referring to the fact that her mother is saying that they're going to wear each other out. Mm. And they do um, because of that competitiveness, because mm -hmm. she wasn't, she didn't want to just sit back and, and take everything that, that was being pushed at her or pushed on her. Um, but she also wasn't, I think, and, and most women at the time weren't sort of feminist enough to say, well, then I don't care, I'm gone. She, she couldn't do that. She loved him too much. She wanted the things he wanted. I think she understood that, that her best self also arrived when he was at his best, mm -hmm. you know, that the two of them together had something that neither one of them had alone. Mm -hmm. I think she also felt incredibly responsible for him at a certain point. Sure. She realized how fragile he was mm -hmm. and how obsessed he was with her. And I think that's why we have that scene in, in, in this episode where you know, Ludlow actually says, you'll, just, you'll ruin him. And what's interesting is that she ended up being blamed for his ruination anyway. <laughs> you know, so, so I think that had a lot to do with it as well. I don't but he also says, this is what you signed up for, isn't it? What did she sign up for? What did she think that she was signing up for in that marriage, do you think? She recognized his vulnerability early and that he was in some ways dependent on her to be his muse. She was flattered by that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for her to suddenly say, maybe I don't want this job, I think that's when Ludlow's reminding her, you know, that is the job you said mm -hmm. you wanted. Well, she had a lot of other roles later in her life, and other seasons maybe we'll see this, but we see that she was a writer, and he stole some of her work or borrowed it. But she also was later a painter, and she became obsessed with being a ballet dancer. Was there one talent that you think she had that it's the greatest loss that she didn't get to develop? Either one of you, Christina, do you have a sense of that? I don't. Well, you know... It's hard to answer that for sure. I don't know that she took writing as seriously as she took ballet and painting. She took very seriously later, but that was the thing she got to do. All right, so it's kind of hard to answer that question, mm -hmm. actually. Okay. So does this mean you're going to have to really become a ballet dancer in later seasons? For the Paris season? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start my training now. Start training now. <laughs> Try to make up for a lifetime of no ballet training. You know where it's going, so you've got a little practice here because you dance a little bit in, in these first episodes. That's so impressive, right? She's on point after, what, only five weeks of training? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I could do everything, but not well, so we had a great double. I saw, I saw, I saw her do it. She did it. Well, Zola didn't have to do everything perfectly either, so it's That's fine. Right. It's right. absolutely fine. So when you were shooting this, how did you talk to each other during the course of it? Did you have conversations about what went on in Zelda's mind or even things like the way she looked or the way she walked or anything? Well, when I was on set, we had the opportunity to talk a little bit. My, my main contribution was sort of behind the scenes when the writers were preparing to, to do season one. I had this, um, what I felt was a very intimidating Skype call with the entire writer's room where they're all out in L.A. getting ready to sort of sit down and say, all right, what's, what are we going to do for the first season? And they're asking me, you know, as if I had gotten my Ph.D. in the Fitzgeralds, to, you know, help illuminate certain aspects and, and give my opinion on things. And so in that way, I think that helped them determine where they had some room to expand and where they should sort of, you know, pull back on certain things. Um, and from there, I, I'm not a TV writer. I know how to write fiction. I was happy to just put it in their hands and, and look forward to what they would do with it. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you ever disagreed about in terms of her, you know, some interpretation of her character, or I think she would do this or do that? No. No? I mean, you've been very kind about not telling me <laughs> if, <laughs> if there is something I did wrong. I made a joke. I'm totally open to hearing. I made a joke when I was on set in, in the summer and um, they were shooting downtown and it was my last evening there and I, I said, well, you know, I have to go, but, you know, I'm really excited about what's happening here. Everything looks wonderful. I'll, I'll give you notes. And, and she said, yeah, I do. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're doing a great job. I'm just going to stay out of it. 
Well, working with your directors, was there ever a moment when you sort of dug in your heels and said, no, Zelda would do this? Yeah, I'm very uh, opinionated and willful. So there was, there, there is an occasional digging in of my heels, <laughs> and I have to say. What, what Different things, I mean, you know, I think that sometimes romance makes people think of very obvious things sometimes or very specific things. And I feel like there's a more pragmatic approach to romance that we haven't necessarily seen as much and is more realistic. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes that would be, I think that was really the area that I would have sort of the most, uh, to, the most differing, that was where the real difference of opinions came from a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit about, because this is part of the fascination of the period, I think the clothes and the hair and all of that. How, how specific did you have to be about all of that and, and who did you get in to do all of that? Well, um, my fantastic makeup artist, Patricia Reagan, well, she's not just mine, but I like to call her <laughs> mine. Um, did the makeup and she's just amazing. Um, and she and I have worked together before and I'm very involved in things like that. Mm -hmm. So we had a great time. Um, and then Tom Broker designed our costumes and he is just amazing. Um, but I was very interested in this idea that if we're telling this story from her point of view, that this is a memory. Mm -hmm. And how much memory can color production design and camera work and uh, costume design and everything. So, so it was very important to me that you always feel like Zelda is a lens that you're seeing this world from, um, and how memory can alter things. Uh, and the answer to the question is, well, it's her memory. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we brought that in a lot with uh, costume design. And also with production designer, our amazing production designer, Henry Dunn, really loved that concept and brought in, there were certain colors we felt were very Zelda. So you'll see them throughout um, and shapes that mm -hmm. are carried through. Um, and also, you know, Zelda, how she feels about certain things that happened and having that reflected in the way she looks. Mm -hmm. you know, was this a big high moment for her? Well, then she's gonna look fantastic because in her memory, this was the best she's ever looked. And at other times, just really kind of illustrating that, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important distinction, actually, in the way that they've approached the production and the way that I approached telling the story in the first place that perhaps some critics haven't recognized. You know, it's a deliberate choice to say, we're creating a story that is Zelda's point of view. And yes, we're going to stick to the facts as much as we can stick to the facts. But when we think about our own histories, our own memories, and we compare them, for example, I have two older brothers, we talked about things we remembered about our mother um, at, at her funeral. The woman that they remembered was not the same woman that I remembered. And, and so our individual experiences do color the facts. Mm -hmm. The facts may stay the same, but what we perceive them to be is different. So this is Zelda's story, Zelda's mm -hmm. version of what happened. I just love that, that the production design is done that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think also in a way that's a gift to people who have maybe maligned her. Um, to say, well, that's your version of it. It's not bad, but, and maybe it's true in your mind. This is Zelda's version of it. We have and alternate it's facts. True here. in her mind because it's right. all memory. Yeah. <laughs> well, is there a case to be made for Team Scott? Of course. Yeah, and I think that it's very important for me to say that this has, this telling the story and telling her story, unfortunately, both people are going to be seen. As villainous at times, mm -hmm. you know that's just the nature of a relationship. Um, but nobody wants to malign Scott or disparage him or or take anything away from him. Absolutely not. It's just that you can't tell the story of a dysfunctional relationship without seeing both parties at their worst. Sometimes there was a scene that was in the the draft of the book when my editor first saw it, and um, it was kind of a, a fantasy representation of this this conversations, argument that Zelda and Scott had shortly after she'd been hospitalized for the first time. And it was taken down on transcript because the, the doctors recognized that there were marital issues that were, were influencing her emotional trouble. And so I represented it as kind of a, a prize fight between the two of them using the dialogue from the, um, the transcript. And I remember my editor saying, I love this scene, but if we leave this here, it tips the scale 
too far. It actually happened, okay? This was a true moment in their life, but the, when you look at the story broadly, we didn't want it to be all Zelda and, and, mm -hmm. and you know, Scott down here as the villain. We wanted it to, to mm -hmm. be an equal representation of all of their faults. And um, so maybe I'll put the scene you know, on my website or something someday. <laughs> <laughs> I still love that scene. Well, what you do see in both the novel and the series is that it's a great love affair. It, it, they are the loves of each other's lives, yeah. and it's very intense. And whatever problems they had, and, and however much they were apart and together again, this is the enduring relationship of their lives. Right. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love so much about Teresa's book, um, is that it was honest. You know, it was honest in terms of of uh, just being very forthright about all the things, the bad things that had happened, and who had done what. But at the end of the day, you know, there's that beautiful scene in your book where she's waiting for his body to come back. And she's in, she's in the train station and his body's coming back on the train and the uh, newspaper people are outside and she's alone in there and she says, I, I don't remember exactly what the words are, but basically that she, this was the love of her life and she wouldn't be anybody. You know, she herself wouldn't be who she was without mm -hmm. him. And I just thought it's so beautiful because really, that's human, that's, mm -hmm. that's how we are. We're able to love and forgive and endure and be horrendous, you know, and those are, that's real, those are real people. Well, it was important to, to make it clear that despite the problems that they had and despite the fact that they were separated for most of the last half dozen years of their marriage before his death, he was writing to her constantly. She was writing back constantly. Their letters were sometimes very businesslike, sometimes filled with tremendous affection for each other. So that was the truth of who they were. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking how much, when you see the letters and all the stuff, how much they loved each other and they just could mm -hmm. not be, be truly kind to each other. Sometimes not. Yeah. Also, in her life, she was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And as you, you point out in the novel today, she would probably be called bipolar. Probably. How do you, how do you see her emotional um, stability or her emotional problems connected to her creativity or her behavior? Was she judged harshly and called the crazy lady just because she was high-spirited? Or was she actually emotionally troubled or both? When doctors have gone back and, and examined her medical records, um, you know, the conclusion that I am just repeating when I say that in my note is that, that she was not medically schizophrenic, that schizophrenic at the time was this kind of catch-all term for anyone who was exhibiting you know, emotion, emotional um, breakdown. And in her case, the doctors uh, who were taking care of her at the time told her literally that, that because she wanted to do things that were professional, she wanted to be a writer, she wanted to be a dancer, and that she wasn't putting all of her, her energy into being a wife and a mother, that she had developed a schism, a split mind. Mm -hmm. They literally called it that, and therefore she was schizophrenic. I think that probably if, if she was um, suffering from bipolar disorder, that some of the highs, some of that, that outrageous behavior could be um, part of that, and some of her depression, of course, would be you know the other the other end of it. If she were around today, she might you know have some kind of medical management of that. That you know, I, I have some friends who have this um, this disorder and have told me that when they take medication for it, that it sort of levels everything out in a way that they actually don't like. So, and we can only speculate as mm -hmm. to whether she would have been more successful, more creative now. Um, she was a smart woman. I think she would have, would have said, you know, Christina, how did you play her in terms of that emotional problem? Did you have to make a decision in your own mind about, about that? Yes. For me, I found this, the, uh, the, the actual, um, you, the, what was going on when she had her breakdown, to me, seems very much like it, it's something that would cause anyone to have a breakdown. <laughs> so for me, not, and I'm you know, not being a doctor or any of these things, but having read all the information and, and understanding what contributed to that breakdown, um, I, 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 I don't know. She doesn't seem, I, I mean, I, again, I'm not a doctor, but to, I don't believe that she was mentally ill. Mm -hmm. I think that 
you know, they had a very intense life and she was the last straw. She was physically exhausted at the time. She had been training for, how, was it a like, year? Yeah, and at, eight at hours every day. At 27, she went back and was training with teenagers mm -hmm. at the Paris Ballet for a spot in the ballet. Right. She managed to be offered a, a spot in the Spanish Ballet and she very much thought that she'd be allowed to do this because ballet is nothing like you know, writing. She thought it'd be fine. And it, he let, they, she was allowed to go through all this and then was told she could not take that position after all of this. So she was physically exhausted, seems like a last straw, and she had a nervous breakdown. And then as soon as you, they, she went to the hospital, she was given electric shock therapy. Well, actually not right away, but when, what happened was in that first hospitalization, once she was a separated from Scott for a period of time and started eating again and was not on this, this ridiculous regimen of training for the ballet, she regained sort of her usual mien. And that transcript that I was talking about, the marital counseling, mm -hmm. comes from that period of time. And what's fascinating about that transcript is that she comes across as absolutely level-headed, very reasonable, completely calm and sane, and Scott comes across as like he's like a, a six-year-old having a temper tantrum. Yeah. It's fascinating. And this would be maybe season four. We're, we're jumping ahead now. We're really jumping ahead to yeah. I mean, this later. would be three four or, or five, four. something yeah, like that. Yeah, probably four. Right. Um, but but I, I but to, for me, just as a layman, it seems like. There were a lot of uh, contributing factors, and um, I think that even just being, you know, being introduced into that environment, being told over and over again that you're crazy, that there's something wrong with your brain, your thinking, I think that in and of itself can alter your brain and your perception of yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, she very quickly became institutionalized in that she was afraid to live outside of Right, and once they start those, those treatments... Yeah, it, it alters your brain forever. The insulin, insulin shock therapy also um, is terrifically damaging. So who knows? So every film or TV series that's ever been made has scenes that had to be cut for whatever reason, length or the pacing or whatever. Is there any scene that you shot that you really wish you could have saved? No, I mean, because we were on such a tight budget and because it's half-hour drama, which is really to, uh, a lot to, to, to tackle, we were very um, you know, efficient with the scenes that we shot. And I don't think there's any scenes that are cut out from the original scripts. That is very efficient. And, and other than the scene that you just mentioned, are there other things that you, or things from the novel that you wish could have been in, in the series? Well, that remains to be seen, obviously. Um, I've, I've been quite flattered so far to see some of the things, you know, whether it's like actual dialogue or, mm -hmm. or situations or just little bits of things um, make it into the, the scripts. It's great. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more about the casting of other people in, in the series. How did you, were you a part of that? And what were you looking for in, in a Scott Fitzgerald or in the mother who's a wonderful character? Yeah. Um, David Strathairn, who plays her father, who you don't, you don't see throughout the rest of the series, but here and there. You'll see him again. Yeah, again, and he, yeah, he comes in the beginning and at the end. And then yeah, but. He would be in subsequent seasons. Um, but uh, my fantastic agent, is here, and she immediately offered up, well, what about Strathairn for the father? And I was like, oh my god, do you think we could actually get him? Yeah. Um, so uh, so we have well Tony done. to thank for that, Tony Howard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so David was the first person we cast besides me, and then Christine auditioned and was fantastic, and she just has this amazing uh, fragility to her. Uh, that I don't know, you can't, it's just what she does is so incredible. Um, and then David, again, just auditioned and was fantastic. And um, I think we got so lucky with him. He and I work so well together. He's such a talented actor and he really is a gift. And is Australian, is that right? He's he is Swedish, Swedish by way Swedish, of Australia. That's right. So he moved right. to Australia when he was like, I don't know, six or something. And so, but, but, I, but he still considers so he, yeah, he looks like a Swede, but he sounds like an Australian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so perfect for Scott Fitzgerald. He's the <laughs> right. first person that you would think of for that. <laughs> How much do you think being a Southerner influenced Zelda? 
influenced her in what way do you mean? In her character. You know, did she... She had, I think, you know, this kind of dichotomous relationship with the South where that was home and it was family and it was history and she was very much emotionally connected to that but she was also yearning for all those new experiences and and the the correspondence that that she has with her family um, shows that sort of one foot still in the south and then in those traditions i don't know that she ever left them entirely behind but i don't know that she ever fully embraced it either mm -hmm. I live in the South now, and I, I think I see that actually in, in people who are Southerners who have gotten away from the South and have come back. It's very interesting. Okay. Well, we want to make sure that we get to questions from you, so maybe we could bring the lights up. And there are going to be microphones in the audience, so if you would raise your hand and just wait till somebody with a microphone comes to you. Um, and if your team's Scott, don't be afraid to ask <laughs> That's right. Every, it's very welcome. Um, yes, back there. But yes, they move fast. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much. Um, but you, Christina, you had mentioned um, that you stood up for some of your opinions, specifically about the romance aspects um, with the show. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and how it related to Zelda and Scott's relationship and kind of the pragmatism and whatnot. Um, well, I just, I think that... I, I think sometimes when people are want to show two people in love, they feel like there's no room for the people being aware of the flaws within the relationship or being aware of the flaws within the other person. And I think it's okay for someone to love a person and but still be able to say right you know I hate that person right now or or to not necessarily behave in the traditional way that women are supposed to be in love. Um, and I think I think, if, if anything, if you're going to, we've all seen period pieces, we've all seen romances, so I think a, a fresh approach to these things is, is warranted. Um, and I certainly think that I'm not a typical romantic lead, so if you're gonna cast me, why not take some of, take the different approach, you know? And I just think, though, that that, that in and of itself just lends itself to grounding something. Um, I think it's okay for somebody to to state what we feel as an audience. Like, why am I with this person? I think it's fine because then you get to have the answer. Um, so I think that that's more of the thing that I had to stand up for, saying I think it's okay for us to for her to be very realistic in a way about what's going on, even though her heart is in a different place. Yes. Other questions? Yes. So, uh, Christina, uh, thank you all. And um, Christina, you just mentioned you're not like a typical romantic lead. Uh, you've done a lot of really interesting movies. Um, your characters are always kind of quirky a lot of the time. Um, I'm wondering if your previous uh, roles have influenced your portrayal of Zelda at all, or if most of your portrayal has come from reading the bios and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think your style of acting is probably going to remain kind of similar throughout the course of your career. Um, uh, so I think that probably who I am influences the, the way that I play people, um, more so than other parts influencing the way that I play people. Uh, and with Zelda, but with Zelda, I feel like she's the most, in my mind, fully formed character that I've ever played because I have so much information about her from all the reading I've done and, and living with her voice um, through her work and through Teresa's amazing uh, book. Uh, um, and I just, um, and I think that, that this part has really been different for me in that because I had so much information, because I had this amazing voice, um, which I really think is sort of <laughs> your voice in a lot of ways, um, I was then able to be very free on set and, and behave in a way, an impulsive way in, during, in scenes, which I think lends a lot of realism. Is it also different playing an historical period piece, for instance, Lizzie Borden versus a contemporary character? Uh, well, Lizzie Borden is sort of a caricature and not really, I would say, a real character. Um, but in terms of playing this historical character uh, versus 
somebody, you know, a fictionalized character. Um, I would say it is very different. Just the amount of knowledge you can have about the person is so different. Um, and uh, you have a lot of other people's conclusions to sort of jump off from, which I think is great because you have the debate already of who the person was going on in front of you or in your head. And I, I do think it's different. Other questions over here? So, question for you both. Who was Zelda when she was alone? In other words, when there was no audience, what kind of person was she? Obviously, this is um, you know, the result of speculation entirely because she, she did keep diaries, but those diaries don't survive. Um, she was a very intelligent, I think, contemplative woman at times. Uh, probably varied depending on what was happening in, our li in her life um, you know, during periods of stress or depression. Obviously, it would have been a different situation. But I would guess that, that you know, it, had she been sort of left to her own devices, suppose she'd gotten the role in, in the ballet and had been able to, to get away from Scott a little bit, um, I think she probably would have been a more fulfilled and, and happier person just in that day-to-day -day life. I hope so. Yeah. I, I would like to think that she had those times. I think for me, she's very much so. I always think of her as being someone who uh, was never alone because she was always somewhere in her head. You know, there was always the, the kind of person that you could leave her alone in a, in a padded cell and she would have an amazing adventure in her mind. <laughs> you know, constantly entertained and constantly self-sufficient in a way. Um, so I, whatever I think of Zelda, I always think of the word bemused for some reason. But I guess that's a lot, you know. Well, I think you said, I don't remember which interview, um, talked about how she understood people. She sort of saw things the way they really were. And, I, and maybe that's what you're getting at, that she would, you know, sort of having her own amusement bemusement sometimes over the people she saw, the people she knew, the sort of idiocy that was happening around her. Yeah, I mean, I picture her very much as having a best friend in herself, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other questions? Right. There. Yes. Hi. She's good. Sure. So clearly, being someone who is obsessed with the jazz age in itself, I was just curious what it was like filming some of the speakeasy scenes, especially since that is such a prominent cultural aspect of the 1920s in itself, and really does what you kind of picture when you think of 1920s? Um, well, I mean, in terms of, from a production standpoint, those speakeasy suits are, are like any big party set piece or like a logistical nightmare, but really fun to be a part of. <laughs> and what I like a lot about, the, about those kinds of scenes is that as, as an actress and as the lead, it, you, there's always going to be a part of the room you're not in. So when they shoot that part of the room, you actually get to sit back and watch the whole thing. Um, and I think it's, you know, for, for us, it's so important that we have that kind of color um, because it's such a huge part of, of their lives and what was going on. And um, I think it helps to orient you a lot. Where did you shoot it geographically? We shot Savannah for Montgomery, and then we shot here in New York. Amazing sets. Well, the Architectural Digest has a piece this week about the set design and the sets themselves. Oh, my gosh, they were so, so impressive. Other questions back there? Dude, yeah. Hi. Um, I just had a question for you. This was your first book that's been adapted for TV or movies or anything. It seems like you've taken a really completely hands-off approach, and I just wanted to know, was that easy for you to do? Because I feel like a lot of authors see their novels as their children and it seems like you're like okay whatever you want to do that's great but I'm just happy that you're doing anything at all with it <laughs> well <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I, that, that is a fact um, everyone I, I've ever met who aspires to be a novelist or who is a novelist has that sort of dream you 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 see two things that you hope for um, after you've achieved the A, I got an agent, B, I got a publisher, the book is going to be printed. 
you sort of wish like it could be really successful, right? It could be a New York Times bestseller. And you think, wouldn't it be cool if it could be adapted for film or television? And I have to say, I was astonished that the even after we'd optioned the Christina had optioned the book, that it, it got made. All right, so maybe I'm just more grateful than some other authors. Um, maybe it was, in fact, I know it was because the team who, who was handling this project made me feel so good about what they were going to do with the material. Um, knowing that Christina was with Pam Koffler and Christina Vachon at Killer Films, I'd seen their previous work. It's all excellent. I just felt like everything was in really good hands. And when they brought in the writers, um, Don Prestwich and Nicole Yorkin, again, this is a team of, this sort of feminist forward group of women who, whose intentions for the project were really reassuring to me. And so they've made me feel very welcome to be a part of the process, but I haven't ever felt like I needed to insert myself into anything. So that's just a testament to how well they're doing their job. Other questions? Oh, somebody back there. Back here? It's yeah. in the shadows. Um, a quick question about um, trying to phrase it properly. Those of us who are feminist supporters and lovers, um, how much did it mean to you to be a part of something that's obviously very female, power-driven? Like, do you feel a, a deeper connection because she was a feminist and ahead of her time? And how does that relate to recent events, shall we say? I think that this is a this story is really relevant uh, because of what's going on right now, and uh, I think you know Zelda wasn't a feminist; she would never have called herself a feminist. Um, but this is a really important story for feminism because you see in this story how she really sort of made her own bed, and I think it's important that we as women kind of look at ourselves and and try to understand how we are perpetuating this. Because the fact that we're still fighting for this stuff is ridiculous. Um, and so I think it's important, and it always, like in anybody's life, it's important to look at your responsibility in the situation you find yourself in. And I think that, you know, I, I am a feminist, and I've always, women's issues have always been my, my drive. Um, and I think it's really important to look at this, this story because she really... She really made a lot of choices early on that, that, that caused a lot of problems later. Uh, and, 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 you know, to, to th it is kind of a common misperception to say she was a feminist icon because, in fact, she had friends who, if we looked at their, their history side by side with hers, we'd say, oh, wait, no, like Sarah Hart was a woman who was truly a feminist who was involved in the suffrage movement at the time, whereas Zelda was like, well, you know, these suffrage women, they all dress badly and they need to do their hair. And she, um, chose, she chose to sort of rely on her looks to get her into a different life. She chose to marry into a different life. And then, and then had to deal with the fact that because she had framed herself and positioned herself this way, she then couldn't have the things that she wanted. When Sarah didn't, chose not to be married, went to college, right. became a writer on her own at, before, before she would become second to anybody. Right. And Zelda was incredible, but very I th immature and a little arrogant, and it could be very lazy. I remember and I think she was she, 20 years old when she got married, you yeah. know, and set herself on that path, and that's, that's important to keep in mind. Yes. It's a great question. Other questions that I can't see? I have a question. In the end, do you think that she is a tragic figure or inspirational? Yes. <laughs> I would right. say she's both. Both. Yeah. Both. I think her spirit and who she was and how she lived her life is, inspir is inspirational. But I think what ultimately happened to her um, is tragic, very tragic. And the fact that she could not get herself out of, uh, out of this situation and they could never really make it work for each other or themselves. Um, right, I would say. I mean, it was tragic for Scott yeah. as much as it was yeah, for her. Yeah, his story is even more tragic, I yeah. think, because mm -hmm. he didn't, you know, he didn't have the, the, the limitations that she had. And it ended very badly. <laughs> Surprisingly badly. But but really, it's going to be a great show. You should watch. It's <laughs> <laughs> really fun.
you don't even see the tragedy so much in season one. So, you know, you haven't gotten right. to the really tragic no. part. So what is the inspirational part about her? Oh, gosh. I mean, the fact that she, she did all of these things despite the fact that there were always people, including, you know, her mother, including her father, including her husband, telling her, you know, no. And she did it anyway. And she did it with so much energy and um, determination to be good at what she was doing. Uh, I just, maybe it's because I'm an artist that I find that especially inspirational. I think it's a good message for anyone. So we have time for maybe one more question if anybody out there has one. Yes, you get the last question back there. <laughs> So you were talking about, you know, the speakeasy scenes being a bit of a logistical nightmare. And I was oh, just Oh, I was curious. kind of being glib. Well, <laughs> they I mean, were fair, fair enough. But, but, um, it, but it is true. They I was just sort of curious, since you were a producer as well as an actor, how you were able to juggle those brains and sort of what challenges that uh, presented. It actually was quite a challenge for me. Um, as an actress, I'm someone who my main talent is ignoring things and pretending <laughs> they don't exist. Um, it really allows me to, to function a lot of times on set. Um, and uh, with this, it's sort of right before they call rolling, I would be like looking at a, you know, a scene on a computer or like make, finishing my notes or you know, looking at an actor's audition or something and, and then going right back into the character. And this was one of the more complicated characters for me to play just if it was just an acting job. So, so that was really a challenge for me, but um, I think it ultimately made me better at my, at my job, uh, just as an actress. Um, and, but as a producer, it was interesting because I've never really cared this much about any project I've ever done. I've seen other people care, but I'd never actually done it myself. So I was like, oh, that's what was going on for that person back then. Um, so it's it's interesting to sort of manage your hopes and dreams for something and how deeply you kind of like have your claws in something and like having to let it go and it's all been a real uh, huge learning experience for me. And I, I would just like to say because I don't know if everybody told you this or not, but when I was on the set talking about you know this dual role that that Christina was playing here, every person I spoke to from top to bottom could not be more impressed with how well she was doing the job. Thank you. <laughs> they... Well, we have to end here, but as I said, all of the series will be available on Amazon on Friday. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Therese. And thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.